Our scripture reading this morning is drawn from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, beginning at verse 12 and extending to the end of the chapter. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and have and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may the whole spirit May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Growing up, the importance of religion was something of a mixed message. There were whole seasons of our life where even though we effectively lived right next door to the church building, we didn't actually attend church, which was kind of an awkward kind of situation. But even in those seasons of my life growing up as a kid where we did attend church, and it was made to be something important. There was never any real talk in my home about religion being anything of a, a matter of a internal transformation, a spiritual matter of the dead being brought back to life, that sort of thing. Rather, religion was portrayed as a tool to help people not blow their lives up. My parents both have credentialing and counseling in different ways. And it was presented to me as I grew up that many, many people tended to make really bad life decisions and they needed not to do that. That was a major problem. They they made bad life decisions. They needed help making good decisions. Religion was a tool that would help you do that. But it was a matter of uh, the will. It was a matter of you getting your life right. It was a matter of finding a healthy pattern. And there, the message wasn't particularly wrong because the pattern of what life is supposed to look like, my parents did say, okay, the Bible says do this and don't do that, and that's the pattern of what it ought to be. 
but it was a matter of the will. People needed to will the right thing and, and make better choices, and that's what religion was. On the other hand, in Scripture, religion is very much a matter of the inner transformation. The true religious life, the true religious life, where you are what God wants you to be, begins with what we call regeneration. There is a changing from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. And that is not merely a metaphor. That is not merely kind of a poetic statement. That is a reality that happens internally. God reaches out. God makes the dead alive. There is an absolute transformation as much as if you had brought a dead man into this chamber and in me praying over him, he suddenly sat up. It's an internal death, but it's death nonetheless. And uh, one of the most classic biblical passages on what that regeneration looks like is Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 7. And you, talking to the Christians at Ephesus, he made alive who were dead, not just sick, not just injured, but who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, so it's kind of a living death, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So you've got dead men walking, but they're being controlled. They are spirit-filled people. According to the Bible, there is no one who is not spirit-filled. Every now and then you'll hear a Pentecostal Christian ask you, are you spirit-filled? They're talking about the Holy Spirit. They're thinking positively. But biblically, there's no human being who is not spirit-filled. You are either filled with the Holy Spirit or you are filled with the prince of the power of the air. And who is that? It's the devil. So everybody is spirit-filled. It just depends upon which spirit they're filled with. Uh, among whom also we, that is again the Christians at Ephesus, and by extrapolation, every single person here, everyone who is a Christian, um, we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. But a change happens, a change that is death to life. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So in these mere seven verses, the apostle shares the gospel of Christ. God is gracious. In Jesus Christ, you can be made alive. Um, and he even raises you up and sits you at his table which is not a future hope, it's a reality happening right now. If you look at the text, 
it's not you're going to be seated at his table. It is you're seated right now at his table. You don't hear it. You don't see it. But in a very spiritual, true way, you're already God's guest at his feast. God has placed you there in Christ Jesus because he is merciful, he is gracious, and he is kind. This takes place chronologically at the exact same moment as what's called justification. That is when God from his throne looks down from the throne and looks at you and says, because you are in Jesus Christ, I find you not guilty. Chronologically, regeneration and justification happen at the exact same instant, but they are not the same thing. Justification is totally a matter of grace. God rules you innocent because you are in Christ. It doesn't have anything to do with your moral estate. Um, it's completely a work of Christ. But at the exact same moment God is doing that, he is also bringing you to life and regeneration. Uh, suddenly he is breaking you free from the prince of the power of the air. He is in his grace making you alive in Christ. He is giving you spiritual life. All these things are happening immediately, and they are both past fail. Uh, you're, you're either not dead or you are dead. There's, there's no real gray area there. And you're either guilty or you're justified. Again, there's no gray area. But paradoxically, once you are regenerated, that doesn't mean that you are now walking morally perfect at all. You have been made alive, but now you're kind of more where people tend to view the unsaved person being. The, the general consensus in the evangelical church is that the unsaved person is sick. He is, he is uh, in need of grace, yes, but he is spiritually alive. He needs to pull himself up by his bootstraps following God, of course, and he needs to get better. He needs to get his life right. Well, according to the Bible, the unsaved person is a dead man. But the moment you are regenerated, actually that's kind of when you can say now you're sick. Because you have been brought to spiritual life. It is an act of God's grace. Uh, your bones have been brought together Ezekiel style. Spiritually, you now live. But there is still a lot wrong with you. And... God is going to begin to set you apart to his own work. He is going to begin to set you apart to holiness. This is what's called sanctification. And we've been looking at that for the last couple of Lord's Days. Um, living or dead is past fail. Healthy or sick, not so much. And that's what sanctification is about. God moving you to cleanliness, God moving you to righteousness, God working in you to make you an image of his son, all of that happens after you have been regenerated. And ironically, this is when you get your life right. So we have kind of come full circle. The message I had received as a child kind of wasn't wrong, but it was the wrong starting place. Dead men don't get their lives right. 
I have officiated at enough funerals to know it doesn't matter how much advice I give to a person laying in a coffin, no matter how much I exhort them to to turn their life around and, and, and really give up this deadness, it, it doesn't happen. Not that I've done that, I would be considered crazy, but honestly, I've been there enough that I know you, you really can't do that. But not only is regeneration a sovereign work of God's grace, so is sanctification. There are many, and in fact some very good people, who would tell you that regeneration is monergistic. That means that God alone brings you to life. You have nothing to do with that. But sanctification, that is synergistic. What that means is that now you're alive, you cooperate with God, you, you know, now you got to pull your 50%, because he's made you alive, but, you know, this sanctification part, well, you're going to have to really add yours. Well, we've been looking at sanctification from the beginning of chapter 4. It continues all the way to the end of the letter, and the end of the letter effectively is a blessing from God, from the apostle. And this is what he says in that blessing. May the God of peace himself, may God, not you, not any mention of you. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May God sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when the apostle raises his hands to pray for you in blessing, he doesn't say, now I've, I've commended you to sanctification. I want you to work on it, and I want you to know you're going to do your 50%. He says, I pray to God in blessing for you that God himself would sanctify you completely. God will do it all, uh, and he will, on the day of the Lord, present you perfect, holy, and complete. And this is in perfect line with what Paul has said elsewhere when he writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, Paul asks this question. For who makes you differ from another? People do, but what makes them differ? Who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? And so Paul is speaking about our estate, and he's asking what is there in you that God didn't give you? Is there anything about you that you just kind of invented? God's the creator. He's the one who works everything. But you spoke something out of nothing to make you that. <clears throat> what is it, says Paul? What, what did you divinely create? Well, the answer is nothing. And then he goes on to ask, now, if you did not receive it, meaning you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Everything, says Paul, comes from God. Even sanctification, if everything means what everything sounds like. 
And so we are totally in the hands of God. We are totally in the hands of God's grace. Sanctification feels synergistic, but then justification and regeneration also feel synergistic. What happens when a person is brought to spiritual life? Well, they repent. Their heart is broken for their sins. They turn to God from their sins. There, there, there may be a sense of sorrow, and there also may be a sense of joy. Uh, they may walk an aisle if that's the kind of church they're at, or they may pray a sinner's prayer or whatever is culturally acceptable. They're doing stuff, and it looks like they're doing stuff. But why are they doing it? Well, they're doing it because God made it alive. They can't repent, they can't long for God, they can't walk the aisle, they can't fill out the card, uh, unless God gives them that. But it certainly feels like they're doing it, and on a certain level, they're doing it, but the, the gift is God's. Well, it's not that different in sanctification. God's word says you should grow in this, and God draws you by his word, but it's God drawing you. God says you should mature in Christ, but it's the spirit of God supplying the grace of God, giving you the gifts of God that you may grow in Christ. So there's really not a lot of difference in where justification and regeneration come from and where sanctification comes from. It is totally, completely a gift of God. And Paul acknowledges that as the book comes to a close, he prays for them, may God sanctify you completely. Elsewhere, when he writes to the church at Philippi, he reminds them, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. I was taught as a kid, the problem is human will. They weren't wrong. It's just the problem's bigger than they thought it was. The problem was, how do you want to want something you don't want? Because that's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about a problem in the will. So how am I going to want to want something I don't want? It's going to be the grace of God breaking in. And Paul reminds the Philippians, God works on your will. God gives you to do what God wants you to do. It is as much an act of grace as anything else. And we have been working through the end of the epistle, where having seen some very big things that Paul wants them to grow in sanctification in, now it's kind of coming machine gun-like. There's lots of stuff. And last Lord's Day we dealt with this, sanctification was a matter of honor your elders, which, like I said then, I have to preach God wants you to love me, which is always very awkward. But that was the, the focus of the sermon that is part of sanctification. And why is it we should honor our elders? Why is it we should love them for their work's sake? Well, the text says, so you can be at peace and specifically at peace one for another. A Christian church is a community. People live in that community. Uh, honor your elders because in honoring them and, and holding them in esteem, 
that will cause peace in the community. But what does that peace look like? It's one thing to say, well, you know, you should be at peace, but ask the Middle East how complicated peace can be. What has to happen that peace can be said to be there? Well, that's what comes next in the next two verses. Now we exhort you, brethren, one, to warn those who are unruly. So if you have unruliness as an attitude in the body, that's going to cause lack of peace. You want unruliness to be dealt with. Comfort the faint-hearted. There are those who are holding on by a mere thread. Uh, their faith is weak. They don't know if they're going to make it to another day. They need comforting. They need sustaining. That, too, in its own way, builds peace. Uphold the weak. It's very similar to the faint-hearted. The weak are struggling. They may not be winning their battles against sin and temptation. Uh, uphold them. Come alongside of them and protect them. Be patient with all. Fairly standard, straightforward. See that no one renders evil to evil to anyone. Which, by the way, means that in our fellowship in Jesus Christ, from time to time, one of us is going to render evil to somebody. Because, again, sanctification is a process, unlike regeneration. That means I'm not what I'm supposed to be yet. And so I am at some point going to be in the wrong. I'm going to be a jerk. I don't know if I'm supposed to speak that way or put it in theological language, but if I put it in theological language, you'll just be hiding it. Uh, the scripture assumes that at some point my lack of sanctification is going to come out, and I'm going to deal evil to somebody, and the Bible says when that happens, don't hit me back with evil, because that just increases more evil. And it will be me today, but it will be you tomorrow, because we are all not perfectly sanctified yet. Um, when you are on your last nerve and you just turn around and bite my head off, I will not render evil to you because, honestly, I know what it's like to be a jerk. That's part of sanctification. Um, always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. So sanctification has a positive building aspect to it. Uh, there, there is a, 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 a truth that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The way the evangelicals put it is a little Sunday school simplistic. You know, God's loving you and having a plan for your life. Maybe uh, you go to an upside down cross the way Peter does. It may be that uh, your goods are stolen, like you read about in the book of Hebrews. But God's plan for you is good, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And uh, pursue what is good for you in that plan and pursue what is good for all. This is all community-focused, 
Sanctification is something that doesn't just happen in the individual. It does happen in the individual, and we're going to look at that in a second. But Christianity is not like Buddhism. Buddhism is a religion that says, you know, in the words of the Buddhist, it's, it's, it's the, the last words of the Buddha, Ananda, you have to be your own light. You have, to, you have to work your way to inner peace. No one can do that for you. Religion is an individual matter. No one can help you. That's Buddhism. In Christianity, there is the assumption of the religious community, and sanctification is going to happen there just as much as it does in the individual. But now, how did we get here from honor your elders? Well, the ministry of the eldership is to help these things happen. But there is an interesting fact about how the original language is worded. In most translations, it reads like I've read from the New King James, honor your elders, uh, be at peace with all men. There seems to be a connection between honoring your elders and having the peace. J.B. Phillips, when he translated this, translates it this way. He attaches that clause not to the end of honor your elders, but to the beginning of living at peace. We ask, live together in peace, and our instruction to this end is to reprimand the unruly, encourage the timid, help the weak, and be very patient with all men. Be sure no one repays a bad turn by a bad turn. Good should be your objective always, among yourselves and in all the world at large. So is J.B. Phillips right about where the clause goes, or is most translations? Well, if you read the Greek New Testament, it sits there kind of as a pivot between both ideas. If you honor the, the, the leadership in the church, that's going to help you be at peace. But it's also true that your eldership has not been assigned to be your taskmasters. In a Congregationalist church especially, we know that the eldership is the first among equals, and we emphasize the equal part. I am no less a sinner than you are. I am no less in need of God's grace than you are. Um, I need God's spirit to do my ministry no less than you need the spirit to do yours, and you do have one. My calling is to be the teaching elder, but in quality, there's nothing that makes me bishop, the way the term is used in the world. I'd love the funny hat. I really think that would be cool, but it's not mine. I'm, I'm not better than anybody. And not only that, I and the other elders and the other deacons can't do by ourselves everything that is said in verse 14 and 15. We are not going to know everyone and what is happening with everyone. There is a huge amount of things that are going to happen beyond our eyes. And live at peace with all men seems to be attached to what comes next. And what comes next is not strictly assigned to the eldership. When we are told, reprimand the unruly, 
care for the faint-hearted, help the weak, not return evil for evil, that's definitely not just the session. That is to all the disciples. And if you leave it to the session and the deacons to make this happen, it won't. There is a proverb you find in the Bible, a proverb which gets quoted quite often. That proverb is, am I my brother's keeper? Who said it, and what is the context of it? Does anyone know? What now? That's right. So uh, where's Abel? I don't know. I'm not my brother's keeper. When we quote that proverb, we're quoting the world's first murderer. That's not a good source. This is not normative. The Bible is telling us what was said, but it's not our attitude. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, actually, the Bible says I am. Now, it's not a coercive thing. It is not that I can come alongside of my brother and apply an authority that's not given to me because the Bible doesn't give me that kind of authority. But I am my brother's keeper. When you join a Congregationalist church, you make vows to walk together and to actually get in each other's faces and say, brother, I want to help you walk with the Lord. And I think you need some help here. And I'm not meaning to run your life. I'm not meaning to give you a hard time. And quite frankly, you have the same right to do this to me. But brother, I need to talk to you. Well, this is the passage that talks about that. These things are not assigned just to elders or deacons. They are assigned to every believer in the church at Thessalonica. We are our brother's keeper, and sanctification is going to happen there. This is the way you should walk at peace, says Phillips, who has a pretty good understanding of the text. Now, one has to ask the question, if Paul is praying that we be sanctified completely in spirit, soul, and body, uh, that's language talking about the individual. We have looked at the community, but now we're looking at the individual. What does that look like? And also, by the way, what does it mean that he defines us as spirit, soul, and body? In most Christian theology, you are defined as being spirit and body. There is an outer man and an inner man. Uh, But here in this one text, Paul uses three words, spirit, soul, and body. What does he mean by that? Well, there is a, a very minority opinion that says, well, your spirit and your soul Uh, they're two different ethereal things. You you have an inner soul, you have an inner spirit. There's actually a tripartite to you. You're not just a duality. There's three aspects of you. That's not really true, and that's not what Paul is saying, because that's not actually what the word soul means. When the Bible uses the term spirit, it's talking about the inner you. It's talking about your mind, your heart, the way you think. It's that inner man 
when the Bible uses the term body, it's talking about your body. It's the outer man, the flesh. When it uses the term soul, and, and this is not the way other writings use the term, it gets used differently later on in English, but in biblical writing, when it uses the term soul, it's talking about the intermeshing of the spirit and the body. You are a soul. In fact, that's why if, if it were 1900 and we were on a boat and the boat was sinking, we would begin to tap out a, a distress call and we'd be tapping out SOS, which stands for Save Our Souls. Um, those who were going to drown in a sinking boat were not saying, send an evangelist to preach to us. They were saying, come save our life. We are body and spirit woven together, and we are going to be drowned and removed from the world, so come save our totality. Well, Paul is emphasizing the totality. He is saying, I'm praying that God, by his grace alone, will sanctify you totally. Sanctify your spirit, yes. Sanctify your body, yes. Sanctify your soul, the interconnection of the two of them. And also, because I'm a Hebrew, I'm writing in a chiastic form, so I put the connection in the middle. Uh, he's praying that we be sanctified totally in, in, in our outer man, in our inner man. Well, what does that look like? Well, it has two major aspects to it. Uh, the first one is a transformation of our attitude. Uh, in verse 16 through 18, the apostle focuses on our inner way of thinking, and he uh, says these are three things that will be sanctification for you. Rejoice always. Now, joy is not necessarily getting happiness. You can be joyful and still be sorrowing. If you are in sorrow for your sins, but you are struck with an understanding of God's amazing grace, and you are filled with joy that he is gracious, you are both sorrowful and joyful at the same time. You may not be happy at that moment, but you are both sorrowful and joyful. Rejoice has to do with joy, and Paul says it is sanctifying to you that you rejoice always. I'm not Richard. I'm not Robert Schuler, and I pastored guys who knew Robert Schuler, and they didn't really speak highly of him. And what I'm about to say is not Robert Schuler, but there is a sense in which the Christian is supposed to live in total positiveness. You have been saved to the uttermost if you have faith in Christ. If God has given you regeneration, if you are made alive, nothing can kill you. You are in God's hand. Let a disease strike your body. Let financial disaster overcome you. Let betrayal stab you in the back. Let horrible luck take hold of you. None of that can pull you out of God's hand. None of that will ever take away the fact God has given you spiritual life. 
you are guaranteed heaven in the grace of God. There is literally nothing that can happen to you, and terrible things happen, but there is nothing that can happen to you that can take away the blessing of God. And if that is true, why would you not rejoice always? Now, again, it's not giddy happiness. You may be even angry, and you may be sorrowful, but there is a joy that a believer has that can be with them always. And Paul says you should have it. Rejoice always. You should pray without ceasing. Now, it's important to note here that in the original Greek, the the verb here suggests something that is happening repetitively, but not every second. There have been some Christians who have taken pray always as literally every moment of the day I should be in prayer uh, overtly. That's not what's being said. It's pray and then pray again and then pray again, you know, spated. But it is a sense of being at prayer continually and constantly. What the apostle is really talking about is what the reformers were talking about when they said you should walk coram deo, you should walk before the face of God, because you are before the face of God all the time. There is no place God is not. There is no place God doesn't see you. There's no place that God doesn't look into your heart. Uh, you cannot dissemble or hide anything from God. Nothing slips by God's notice. And if God is always present and God is a person, isn't it rather natural to talk to God if God actually is there? I mean, that's the essence of somebody being there with you. You tend to turn and talk to them. And so the apostle is saying, for your sanctification, live Coram Deo. Live in a knowledge that God is always there. He is always there to hear what you are talking about. He is very interested in you. You are his child. Pray to him always. And in everything, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. It doesn't say to give thanks for everything. That would be the philosophy of Spinoza. Spinoza was a 17th century philosopher who said, because God is good, therefore we are living in the best of all possible worlds, and if we find any problem with it, well, we're just not interpreting it right. And so if you get mugged uh, in the rain and hit over the head and left for dead, this is still the most perfect of worlds, and everything is great, and you just have the wrong view of it. Um, that's not what's being said. That would be for everything, give thanks. But rather, this is in everything, give thanks. There is no event in your life, no circumstance, but what God is with you. This is very similar to what I said before. In everything, be thankful, because God is yours. What is the very essence of doing good deeds from a Reformed perspective? What does the catechism tell you you do good deeds for? Is it to earn your way to heaven? Does it have any salvatory merit to it? Well, you know it doesn't. You are not saved on the basis of your good deeds. 
You are saved on the basis of Jesus' good deeds. So why do you do good deeds? You do them because you are utterly thankful to God who has supplied you with grace. Well, this is effectively the apostle saying that. In every event, be thankful to God. There is nothing that you have that God didn't give you. He has given you more than enough in Christ. In everything, be thankful. This is, quote, God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Let others be ungrateful. Let others be in despair, but not you. God has set you apart, and that is the essence of sanctification. What has God set you apart to? Well, he set you apart to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. This is your inner self. This is what God wants to see from you. Uh, And then there is the outer aspect of what this sanctification would be. We have already looked at it community-wise, and that is outward, but the apostle goes on further, and he begins to give examples of ways outwardly uh, sanctification can be hindered. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good abstain from every form of evil. So having talked about the inner spirit, he then turns to the Holy Spirit and says, the spirit is trying to get your attention. Don't drown him out. There are those who are disturbed by the language of quenching the spirit because the Holy Spirit is God and there is nothing God cannot do. And so how can you quench him? Well, I mean, you can't put out the Spirit's fire, but you can absolutely refuse to listen to it. And that's what seems to be being described. The Spirit is there leading and guiding, uh, and God's going to have his way, but there is a relational aspect to God. God wants to talk to you. He has just told you to pray to him always, If God is asking you to talk to him, the odds of him talking back are very high. And that is by the Spirit. The Spirit will speak. And uh, it's not going to be a problem of the Spirit speaking. It's going to be a problem of you listening. So don't quench the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies. First Thessalonians was written at a time where we are told in the book of Acts that God was still sending prophets to his local churches Uh, When we read the Didache, which was mentioned in Bible study this morning, uh, we find out that that was still happening around A.D. 110 and such. Uh, There is is great question about whether God is doing that now. Um, God has given us the canon of Scripture, has come by his apostles and prophets. There is no real reason to believe God is going to raise up a prophet at this moment But prophecy is prophecy. God speaks by prophets, and when God speaks, he expects to be heard. And we have more than enough prophecy God has given us. What is this? I mean, what is it by its essence? Well, it's what holy men of God spoke 
as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, it's a quote from Second Peter. We don't need a prophet to come in here and give a prophecy for us to be told, now don't despise prophecies. Honestly, we, we got a book of 66 of them, and we have a tendency to despise them. And so the apostle says, don't do that. Your sanctification is to listen to God and to rejoice in what God says and not to despise it. You are to test all things. That suggests that good and evil is not going to be as evil to tell as you might think. If you have to test everything, um, the devil may look like an angel of light. And you may find that that person you can't stand nevertheless is the person that God is using to talk to you through. So you can kind of flip it that God's messengers may look like jerks. Test everything. Test what's going on. Test what is right. Uh, hold on to what is good. Hold on to it, no matter what the world thinks of it. What is good is good. And reject all forms of evil. And it is important that we realize that's what it says. In the King James Version, which I have no intention of speaking against, uh, it says, put off every appearance of evil. That's just not a good translation. It doesn't have anything to do with the Greek. The Greek is solid. There's no textual variant. There is not another English translation on earth that says, put off every appearance of evil. It says, put off every form of evil. If you were to put off every appearance of evil, and that was the requirement for righteousness, how would you talk to a prostitute at the heat of the day at a well by yourself? Would that be putting off every appearance of evil? What about if you were the kind of person that your enemies could say, there's no sense in listening to him. Why, he hangs out with wine bibbers. And sinners, right? So if we put off every appearance of evil to everybody's appearance, Jesus Christ is not righteous. And we cannot be in that kind of place. Jesus Christ is literally perfectly righteous. He has no sin at all. The, the Greek says put off every form of evil. And you will be busy enough doing that. Evil has multiple forms. You are to test you are to, if you find it to be evil, it doesn't matter if the world says it's good. You are to put it off. That is your sanctification. When Paul prays that you may be sanctified totally, totally is what he means. Now, our last question that we should bring to this text is, how likely is this to happen? Years ago, a friend was telling me about a conversation he had had with a colleague. And he said, my colleague said to me, you know, Fred, the Bible calls us to sanctification. I just don't know if it's going to happen. I, I don't know. I don't get any better. Um, I've been there. You know, you wonder, you look at yourself. And if you look at yourself, the odds of sanctification feel pretty small. Uh, the sins I wrestled with when I was 14, I still wrestle with those. Um, you'd wish that weren't the case, but, you know, 
Sanctification sure seems slow. What is the chance it's going to happen? Well, the apostle shoots through all that negativity, and he ends the blessing with, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. So there's not a whole lot of out in that. There's not a whole lot of, well, you're a hard case. The apostle says God can handle this. He calls you to sanctification. I have prayed for your sanctification. Uh, You will labor in sanctification, and yet, paradoxically, it will all be from God, and God is absolutely faithful. You are not faithful necessarily, but God is absolutely faithful who also will do it. You see any asterisk there saying, except in various cases? God will do it. And we are promised he will do it in several places. Paul writes again to the church at Philippi, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Or listen to the Apostle John. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Will this take place? Well, God's reputation is writing on it, and God has never had his reputation tarnished. So I'm pretty solid. It's not you. But see, your regeneration wasn't you. If you think your regeneration was you, you're not regenerated. It's all of God. And as much as your regeneration isn't of you, your sanctification isn't either. God is faithful. I pray he sanctify you. He is faithful and he will do it. This is the word of the Lord.